We are in part four of our Life of Worship series through the book of First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. And we're trying to examine what it looks like to live for the Lord and to do what we were designed to do, which we were built to worship. And I entitled today's message a very mature title called, My God's Bigger Than Yours. Now, I want to start with a concept that will lead to the fill in the blank on your sheet. And it is this. As long as mankind has been around, we need a couple more Bibles here in the corner as well, if you have any over on this wing, if we have any more left, we got a couple more coming to you. As long as people have been on this earth created by God, there has always been a desire to worship. There is no culture in the world that does not have some form of religion or superstition. We always, as people are very acutely aware that there is something greater than us going on. Much of the time we have been incorrect in our assessment of who or what that is. But make no mistake, all cultures everywhere, all throughout the world, all throughout history, have some sort of religious concept. Along the way, when... We did not have an accurate understanding, or even if we did and we rejected it, we have created things to worship which have been known as gods. Anything that you put as utmost importance, anything that you give adoration to or you pay homage to is a god to you. Now, the way that it worked kind of in the ancient world was very practical, you would carve out or someone would carve out a statue, an image, um, some little figurine that would represent the God that you worship. You'd literally take that and pray to that idol. It was very tangible. It was a way for them to go, this is my God. This is what I worship. And they would put it on their mantle. They'd put it by their door. They'd put it in a shrine and they would worship it. And we look at that and we would go, man, that's totally ridiculous. That's silly. And we look at passages in scripture that says, why are you worshiping something that doesn't move, can't breathe on its own, can't talk, and you made it? That's kind of stupid. Why would you worship something you made? Because clearly it's not bigger than you. What we do not realize is that today we are doing the exact same thing. It's just not tangible. The gods of our world right now are thick. They are heavy. And I want you during this message today to consider what the gods are in your life. You go, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't have any weird like deity thing. Well, let me give you some suggestions. Fun. Is fun your God? You go, well, how can fun... In your mind, do you always seek escapism? It's always about... I just don't want any responsibilities. I just want to be out there. Anytime God says, I want you to do this for me, and you realize I don't want to do that, that's not fun. And you spend your whole life chasing after feeling better and having fun. You've placed it before God. Anytime something goes head to head with God and it wins, it's your God. How about sexuality? Either... You're dominated in your mind about sexuality. You use it to get through the day. It's where your mind drifts to. It's what makes you feel better. Or whether or not you utilize your sexuality to gain control over environments. Is it body self-image? 
You can't go anywhere without constantly worrying how you look. Always checking the mirror, always making sure that you're trying to look a certain way. All magazines you buy, every TV show that you watch is all about self-image. That's your God. Is your God money? Every waking moment is how am I going to do this? What about my security in the future? I got to put this money away. I got to make more. I got to do this. I got to work harder. I got to work harder. Everything's performance driven. Everything's about money. That's your God. Is it fame? You want everyone's attention on you. Whatever that hole in your heart is, it has created a monster. And you spend all of your energy saying, look at me. Notice me. Be about me. Is it your past? The baggage, the garbage, you've become a victim by identity. It's all about the pain of your past. All you do is think about the garbage, the guilt, shame, all the yucky stuff that has ever happened to you. You've now made it to where your whole world revolves around it. Then that is your God. Do you understand? Our gods are powerful. But in truth... They're either no God at all, or they're demonic in origin. They are not fit to worship. They will not heal you as you wish. And they're inappropriate to worship. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is simply this. There is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we can begin. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, it's page 193 in the Bible's handed to you. That makes it a little faster, 193. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Now, we're going to cover chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. How are we going to do that? We're going to go long. Um, <laughs> I found out that's practically the answer from last night. All right, well, how we're going to try to do it within the time frame is that we're going to read a portion. I'm going to do the Lance paraphrase portion. And then we will go back and read a portion. Then I will paraphrase a portion. All right. So that allows us to get into this narrative, this history story. So let's just read the first three verses and we'll pray for our time together. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. All right, so here's the story. Israel goes head-to-head -head with an enemy. They lose. They automatically assume there's no way we can lose if God's on our side, so clearly God made us lose. That's not going to work out for us. we got to figure out a formula. There's got to be a better way. Well, the way it kind of worked with Jericho when they went around the walls and they came crumbling down is they had the Ark of the Covenant, that special, magical presence of God. So let's go grab that. Then we'll be sure to win. How do you think this went for him? Probably not so hot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, of all the things that we look at in Scripture today and we chuckle at and shake our heads at and say, wow, that was stupid, is what we're doing. Lord, we are duplicating the folly, the absurdity 
of what your people have done in the past. We're doing it every day. We're doing it in our hearts right now. And we're living according to the same concepts. I pray that you would restore the worship of your name, that you would show us how to serve you, how to act towards you, and how to be different. Change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? Well, we most likely remember the Philistines through the most famous story of David and... Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. Now that's not going to happen yet. That's still down the road in our story. We will cover it together, but David hasn't even been born yet. So that's a little later. The other probably most common story that we think of about Philistine and Israelite interaction goes backwards a bit in the period of the judges, specifically in a dude with long hair. His name is Samson. Now, Samson went head to head. As a matter of fact, when he died, he was in the Philistine city and temple in Gaza. There he pushed down the pillars and the temple collapsed on him and thousands of Philistines. He always battled with them. He ripped off their gates and put it up there and they'd fight and the Delilah thing. All that had to do with the Philistines. The Philistines have an unknown origin. Nobody quite knows where they came from. They go, well, they were Indo-European peoples and blah, blah, blah. All we know is it's likely that as they went across the sea and came into the Middle East area, it was around 1200 BC. They basically come in through the Greek Isles and land on the coast right in Israel's territory. When they set up shop, they are a small group of people, but highly organized, highly educated, sharp, and they have what other soldiers don't have. They work with iron. That gives them a distinct military advantage, and they ended up warring against Israel and being very successful at it. As a matter of fact, they pushed in at different times throughout Israel's history so significantly that when you listen to the radio today, they will refer to a portion of the Middle East as Palestine. Why? Because it means Philistine. We all got that? That's how significant these people are. Now, in the book of First and Second Samuel alone, the name Philistine is used almost 150 times. It's very important to know a little bit about these people. This is some of their first clashes in this era. We are now a little ways away from the period of the judges, and now we're watching God tear down what Israel was. They're seeing hardship, and he's about to breathe new life into Israel through the leadership of what man? Samuel. That's why the book is called Samuel. Now, they go to battle, and they lose 4,000. They said, well, God let us down. We didn't do it right, so we need to do it better. We're going to go grab the special box. So the people sent men to Shiloh, verse 4. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is held, where the tabernacle was, where Eli, the bad high priest, and his two debaucherous sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are running the show. This is going to be the end of an era. God has already told them in a prophecy, I'm taking you out of the priesthood. I'm going to kill your sons, Eli. And Eli's been in charge for 40 years. I'm going to kill your sons. And just so you'll know it's me, they will both die on the same day. Do you remember this prophecy? All right. 
So they sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. What? That's a long title. What are we talking about? Okay, so I'm going to need a, a little bit of help here. So, um, Mike, can you help me out here real quick? Can you come here for, real quick? Um, I need you guys to bring this up forward. Try not to grab it by the finial on the end. That one's broken. Grab it by the posts, the posts, and carry it right up here and just set it right over here by the, by the pulpit or the, the lectern. Thanks, guys. Why did I have them move it? So I don't die. Okay, you can have a seat. Okay. I was thinking about that, too. <laughs> All right. This is in size and dimension, almost an exact replica of the Ark of the Covenant. It was made by one of the guys in our church. His name's Fred Radford. Because we do not have the original Ark or know any idea about where it's at, you'll notice that all the drawings and the design of the cherubim on top are different. People don't know if the wings are like this, if they're like this. So this is one of the estimations. He made the box within a quarter inch of the exact um, uh, specs of what's laid out in scripture. Now, let's take a look at it real quick. It is about two and a half feet wide, about four feet long. It's two and a half feet high. Ark means box nothing fancy noah's ark was a big floating box that's it so whenever you hear the ark of the covenant it's the box of god's promise is really what it means it was made out of acacia wood which is a very hard wood that you can locate in the middle east it was overlaid with gold on the outside and on the inside however there's a few pieces that are solid gold much of the lid is solid gold. The uh, cherubim are hammered gold, all solid. The posts that go through, and why are there posts? So you don't touch it. You carry it by the posts. It's the only way. You're never supposed to put it on a vehicle. You're always supposed to carry it by hand. The posts were acacia wood overlaid with gold. Now, if it's a box, that means it contains some things. What things were in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, there was three primary items. One was the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. If you remember, when it first went down, God supernaturally carved the first set. Moses had it carved by God. How cool would it be to see God's penmanship? That would have been awesome. Well, no, we don't have that. Why do we not have that? Because Moses got ticked off and broke them. So God goes, you broke them, you make the next set. So Moses had to chisel out and make the next set of the Ten Commandments. Those were placed in the ark. Also was a jar of manna. If you remember when they went through, God gave them miraculous provision by this stuff that would show up on the ground called manna. They scooped up some, put it in a jar, stuck it in there. One other item was in there. That was when they were all having a big concern over who would be God's liaison to the people, who would be the priesthood, they all had staffs. They stood before God and Aaron, Moses' brother, his staff budded like as if it was growing right in front of them. That was the sign. They took that staff and placed it in the ark. The lid was shut. Nobody touches the ark. What happens if you touch the ark? You die. And under no circumstances do you ever what? Look into the ark. How do we know that? 
Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Many Germans lost their lives looking into the ark. Okay. Now, why are the cherubim here? These are the angelic beings that hover before the throne. The cherubim have always been a couple things. They are the attendants of God that when John in Revelation looks up and sees the throne room of God, there are always the hovering creatures. They are not consistently described throughout scripture. A lot of them look very different. Now, they are also protectors of the sacred. For example, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they had the Tree of Life. What blocked them from getting back in but a cherubim with a flashing sword? The cherubim were on the curtain that was in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They're always known as being the ones closest and shielding and protecting the glory of God. It is believed that this top lid, this was the key part. It was not that God was inside the box. There's a key little um, part on here that's a bit raised and designed. It is believed that hovering over the lid was the throne of God, that he would allow his presence to come down and sit in a supernatural chair, or he would hover with his presence right here. So when the priest would talk, they would address the Lord by looking at, because they didn't know where else to look, they would look at the lid cover. Okay. Does that make sense? So when you hear the description of the Ark of the Covenant of God Almighty who sits enthroned between the cherubim, now you have an idea on what's going on. All right, so the rest of our story is really going to involve this box. Now it says, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. They were supposed to take care of it and make sure it was used properly. Clearly, they didn't do that. They allowed it to go to war. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what is all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Why did they say gods? Because in their world, it's always God's plural. They had a God for everything. The God of fertility, the God of the rain, the God of the uh, soil, the God of this, the God of that. So they're assuming, oh no, now Israel's going to have their gods go head to head with our gods. I wonder who's going to win. It says, uh, they are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Wait, how'd they know that? That was 300 years ago. How do they know about what happened in Egypt? Because if you're in the Middle East, everyone knows what happened in Egypt. It was such a big deal when all the Hebrew slaves were let go out of Egypt and they lost their whole slave labor force in one day. When God rained down supernatural mighty plagues upon the Egyptian empire, it shook the whole world region there. Everybody knew what happened. It doesn't matter if it's 300 years later or not. They knew the power of this God of the Israelites. So they're freaking out, but they don't really have any options. So they say this, be strong, Philistines, be men. Or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. 
And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Wow, that sure didn't go like they expected. What's the first commandment? Anybody remember? You shall make no other gods before me. Remember? God is very specific about that. Don't you dare have anything in your life ahead of me in your priority list. I will not stand for it. So we know that gods are a big deal. But what's the second commandment? Now, it's interesting. It says, make no graven images. That's the one that we all kind of go, hey, I don't understand that one. Let's move on to number three. Let me read it to you in Exodus chapter 20 and listen to this description. Do not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God am a jealous God. Don't make any images of anything to worship. You'll notice that we are all attracted to images. As a matter of fact, there's always had to be a caution in early ancient Christianity that we didn't worship the image of the cross because we always have an image sitting around somewhere, right? Everybody always wants to know what it looks like and how can I have more of it and I want to have it in my house, that kind of thing. Make no image of anything to worship because I'm a jealous God. Here's what I believe is our great travesty of modern day American church and Bridgeway Christian church. We believe that we can worship God as one among many options. If I asked you today, most of you have very soft hearts, very good hearts. If I asked you and I said, do you love the Lord? You would instantly reply, of course I do. And some of you will even say the phrase, I love God with all my heart. Yet in examining your lifestyle, examining how you spend your time, how you spend your money and resources, and what you think about most of the time, God is actually not number one. He is loved among many. Here's the problem with that. God doesn't allow that option. He said, I am a jealous God. You either have me or everything else. I will not be in a line. I will not be second best. I will not be in a group. It's me or them, period. Here's the other reason um, why the second commandment is important. Think about it this way. How come we don't have any pictures or statues or images of the very God we worship? Have you noticed that, I mean, all through Judaism, all the way through Christianity, it is the belief that we serve one God, Yahweh, right? We don't even know how to pronounce his name because they didn't even want to say it. So we have no picture. What does God look like? There's nothing anywhere. Why? Because God is invisible, right? How do you make an image of the invisible? You have no idea what he looks like. Why is God invisible to us? It's a practical question. God, it doesn't make sense that if you're trying to create a relationship, it's hard to have a relationship with an amorphous, invisible being. It would be a lot easier if we had something with shape. Because then we could be drawn towards it. We could know where it is. But God has allowed himself to be invisible. Why? 
for one, at least one key reason. The minute you have an image of God, what have you done? You just reduced him down to size. It doesn't matter how magnificent, how awe-inspiring, how incredible your statue may be. You just capped God. Does that make sense? He will not allow that. Don't you dare limit. No mind has even conceived what God is like. So no, he will not reveal himself to people because people will limit him down. He will not allow us to worship an image because it will always be less than who he truly is. And yet every day we try to reimagine God into someone we can handle, manipulate, and control. You do not want a God you can handle. Otherwise, he's not God. Does that make sense? Let's move on. Now, as we move forward, I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase a whole bunch of this. You ready to go? All right, we're going to skip through this rather rapidly. Now, all this bad stuff goes down, and a messenger running from the battlefield, had dust on his head, clothes torn as a sign of mourning, comes hauling into the holy city of Shiloh. And he says, oh my gosh, all this bad stuff happens, and the ark has been captured. And they're like, what? No way. Everybody cries out, oh, woe is me, right? Because it's the biggest, most worst thing they could ever imagine, right, to ever happen in their city. So... They're all crying out. Now, Eli, who is still technically the, the figurehead guy, is now 98 years old, extremely overweight, and blind. He's sitting in a chair by the road where he thinks the ark went by. He doesn't know. He couldn't have seen it. So he's waiting there, totally afraid of what's going to happen. And he goes, what's going on? The messenger, out of kindness, runs over to him and says, hey, three things really bad went down. Number one. We lost to the Philistines heavy casualties. You can imagine in his mind, Eli's going, we can bounce back from that. Number two, both your sons are dead. All right? Didn't like him anyway. No, he didn't say that. He didn't, I'm just kidding. He didn't really say that. Uh, if you remember last story, he put them before God. Now he doesn't react off the information until the third item. The third item, and by the way, the ark of God has been stolen. It says, when Eli heard that the ark of God had been stolen, he fell backward off his chair, snapped his neck, and died. It is such a huge deal because it is believed that God's presence was tied to the box. At this exact same moment, his daughter-in-law, remember he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Phinehas' wife was having a baby. They go into her and she is having a hard time in labor. She is dying during labor and they come in and tell her the information. She said, what happened? They said, heavy casualties. Your husband, the baby's father is dead and the ark of God is gone. She begins to glaze over, checks out and the lady says, don't worry. You've had a son, meaning your lineage will continue. She goes, I don't care. Name him Ichabod. Ichabod means no more glory. It shuts down everything in Israel. This is a very massive deal. Now, uh, why? Why is this such a big deal? Is God tied to a box? No, he's not. He's never been tied to a box. As a matter of fact, 
what was wrong with this picture? Well, I'll tell you, it's very similar to what we do. They were using God like a magic amulet. They were using magic God. As long as I have the box, you bring that in, God has to come, right? It's a way of controlling God. We do it all the time. You go, how's that? Let me irritate you here for a moment. (laughs) A number of years ago, a very well-meaning godly man wrote a book and he found a beautiful prayer in scripture and he wanted to say, this is the cry of my heart. This is something very valuable to me. And he wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez. Instantly, it turned into magic land. I cannot stand that movement. Why? Because it became a mantra. If you say the prayer in all the right ways for just the right amount of time, God will bring blessing into your life. You know what that is? It's called magic. It's exactly what they were doing with the box. Why did Jesus consistently heal people in different ways? Because we are creatures of formula. The minute we see something be duplicated, we try to own it, recapture it, bottle it, and use it to manipulate God. God, I said the prayer. God, I did all the right things. You have to bless me. No, I don't. It was never about your magic. It was never about my box. And just because I did it that way a hundred times before, you will not tell me what to do. I am God and you are not. Understand that. Now, we are doing it all the time. God, why don't you bless me? I'm doing this. God, why don't you do what I tell you to do? Why don't you answer my prayers? I'm praying like this. Because you're not in charge. You've never been in charge. God is in charge. You're about to watch how they learn it should really go in this story. Look at the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. Just to let you know that God hadn't shrunk away or God hadn't failed, they add this story in, one of my favorites. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Who is Dagon? He's their big Yahweh guy. He's also known as El. He is their creator God. He is the dad of a very famous God named Baal. Everybody remember that? So he had this great Dagon, fish God, grain God, fertility God. He had a mistress by the name of Asherah. Baal, his son, had a mistress named Ashtoreth. These are all the names that you see spinning around the Canaanite peoples in the Bible. They brought this in front of him in his temple. Why? When you beat up an enemy, you bring in the spoils of war before your God, saying you, as our God, beat up their God. Oops. Watch what happens next. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Awesome. We all know exactly what happened, yes? Here's what happened. God looks over at his angels and he goes, hey boys, can you take care of that? Yeah, sure can. Here's Dagon, enormous statue. The angel goes, oops. (laughs) Wham! Smash down, face down right before the ark. There, that's where you need to be. Right? 
Early the next morning, right? They found him laying down before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. They're thinking, that's weird. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord and his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. What just happened? God went military maneuver. Here's what happened. He said, can you knock him off again, please? And this time, let him know I win. In ancient military practice in the Middle East, you would remove the head of your enemy as total domination. For example, when King Saul, who's going to be the first king of Israel, when he dies, the Philistines cut off his head and take it to Dagon's temple and hang it up. It's how you did that. Also, to do body count, you can't grab all the bodies to show that the enemy is dead. You cut off their hands and bring them in a bag. He just cut off his hands and cut off his head and said, I'm God, you're not. Right in his own temple. That's pretty powerful. Should our enemy be afraid of God? Absolutely. That is the amazing almighty God that we serve. Amen? Amen. Let's keep moving. It says, now they had it in Ashdod where this temple was. And the Lord's hand, you'll hear it over and over and over, the Lord's hand was heavy upon them. Why is that a pun in Hebrew literature? Because Dagon doesn't have any hands anymore, but God's hand is very heavy. God's hand was very heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he brought devastation upon them in the form of death and tumors. Anybody remember the story? All right, he brought tumors upon them. You go, what kind of tumors? We have no idea. You're going to find out later they're associated with rats. And there's all kinds of ancient kind of commentary on it. The rats were on the ships and they invaded the people. And they know that there was some type of tumor involved. Now, a lot of historians would go, well, that sounds like bubonic plague to me. It's carried by the rats, the fleas on the rats, and it brought swelling and death. So maybe it was a form of bubonic plague. We don't know. There are only two Hebrew words that give us a clue to what they are. Number one is the phrase swelling. We know that can mean boil, cyst, or tumor. There's some type of growth that is associated with what God did. Second word, a little bit more unsettling. Second Hebrew word, groin. Uh-oh. Where the tumors hit? Right. In most of the older translations, you'll literally see the word hemorrhoids used. Why? Now, what's interesting is I had no idea why, because this is a really bizarre way to hit people. Okay, this is God's kind of bizarre way of kind of showing them down. Now, somebody last night handed me a note. I put it on my desk and they said, isn't it interesting that God struck a fertility God in the place of fertility? And I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful. Now watch what happens. Ashdod breaks out with groin tumors everywhere, right? And all kinds of nastiness and people are dying and they go, I don't want the box. Get the box out of here. And they go, well, where do we put it? And they go, send it to Gath. That's one of their other cities. So they move it over to that city. All of a sudden they break out in tumors and have death. And they're like, I don't want it. You take it. They send it over to Ekron. Quote, are you trying to kill us? 
Nobody wants the box. Everywhere the box goes around the Philistine territory, everybody's breaking out in death. And they're all scared. They play this hot potato game for seven months. Finally, they're like, get rid of it. Give it back to them. I don't want it. And they go, well, what do we do? They grabbed all their priests and diviners and got them together. And they said, how do we get rid of this thing? And they said, all right, well, we got to think of it. Now, listen to how the pagans interact with a God they don't know. And it will embarrass us because we don't even worship this good. Listen to how they handle this scenario. They said, number one, don't you ever send it away empty handed. That's not right for a God. So you don't ever arrive with before a God without an offering. Number two, send a guilt offering. We offended him, which we don't even think of nowadays. Three, perhaps then you will be healed. We don't know that for sure. Maybe he'll forgive you. I don't know. And when you give him a gift, give him something that makes sense. And they're like, well, what do we send? They're like, I don't know. I don't know what he wants. They're like, well, what was the plagues? Rats and groin tumors. Awesome. Make gold ones of those. (laughs) What? I got to make gold tumors? Yeah. All right. How many should I make? They said, well, there's five main cities, five main rulers. I want five rats, five golden tumors. And they're like, okay. So they make the golden tumors and they stick them in a box. They're like, I hope he likes them. Because they don't know what they're doing. They're doing their best. They said, all right, well, how are we going to get it back to them? I'm not touching it. You're not touching it. How do we get this thing back there? And he goes, well, remember, let's get a brand new card. Someone that's no one's ever used it because you don't give God leftovers. You always give them the best. So they get a brand new cart. And he said, now, I want you to grab two cows that have never, ever been hitched up or yoked before. And they go, well, why is that? Because they don't know what they're doing. If we really want to know whether this is a God thing, we got to kind of set up a test. If they've never been hitched before, they're just going to walk in circles. They don't know what they're doing. If it's a God thing, they'll know what they're doing. By the way, make sure that you select two cows that currently have calves that are nursing. Take their babies away and put them in a pen over there. If the mother cow will actually leave her babies, then we know it's supernatural because she would never do that. So they put it all on the cart, they put this thing up on the cart, and they put their box of gold tumors and rats on the, on the thing, and they set them free, and they're like, go for it, Bessie, right? Now she starts taking off, and these two cows, without turning to the right or the left, walk right to a Levitical city, and they're mooing for their babies the whole way. Meaning, I don't even want to be doing this. And they walk directly and stop right in the Israelite city. All the people are out there harvesting and they look and they go, we got our box back. They send up this rejoicing. I can't believe it. They grab some Levites. They move the box down on the rock. They chop it all up, do this big offering for God. I can't believe this is so awesome, right? And they're super excited. The Philistines see this and they go back home. Says chapter six, verse two. Oh, excuse me. One piece I forgot. Chapter 5, verse 19, but God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death. Those are Israelites because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Really? Even the enemy 
is giving honor and respect to a God they don't know. You Israelites looked inside it. What is wrong with you? Why is there never any respect? God goes, now, I'll kill 70 of you. Now do you respect me? Don't look at my box. Quit messing with me. I'm sick of your attitude. Get it right. Worship me appropriately. Chapter 6, verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. Honestly, it was 100 years. It was only 20 years until Samuel started his public ministry right now. But a hundred years after it was stolen, uh, after it was placed in Kiriath-Jerim, a man by the name of King David, first year as king, moved it to Jerusalem. Other than that, it stayed right here. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord, and Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, And commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. That's symbolic of pouring out the contents of your heart in repentance. And on that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was the leader of Israel at Mizpah. You want to know how it ends? They gather for this huge repentance service, and Philistines notice that there's a massive gathering of Israel. And they said, oh, they want war. They bring in all these mighty forces, and they run to attack them. Israel's in the middle of their repentance service, and they look back, and here comes the enemy. Samuel is busy there doing sacrifices before God. And all of Israel says, we have to go to war. Please intercede for us. Seek God's face. Worship him. Do not stop. You worship, we'll go to war, and we'll see what God will do. Do you understand the big shift? It went from magic to worship. Big difference. What do you think happened? And on that day, verse 10, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines, threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. God goes, now this is a battle I can fight steps in, shatters the Philistines. As long as Samuel was alive, interceding for Israel, the Philistines were shut down. Warfare in worship, not warfare with magic. Why a loud thunder? Why did God do it that way? Oh, by the way, Baal is the god of thunder. Oops, not anymore. God goes, you own what? Oh, that's right. That's mine too. Here's how we're going to close. So many of us, I would say, the vast majority, have gods in our lives that have us shackled down. We are under the bondage of serving something else. It will never satisfy you, and it will bankrupt your spirit. As we close, if you are ready and willing, I want you, as I go through these prayers and mention the gods of our lives, and it applies to you, I want you to stand up in confession to the Lord 
and say, yes, God, that's my problem. And just pray with me. When we close, I'm going to have everybody stand. This isn't about trying to be embarrassed. This is about owning up to what's going on in your life. You don't have to say anything to me, but you have to say everything to God. Let's start in prayer. At the end of the prayer, we'll just dismiss. We're going to play a video behind you as you leave, but don't feel like you have to stay. We'll dismiss you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that when we look at our lives and how we spend our resources, we are worshiping and serving something other than you. Something in our lives is sitting on your rightful chair, your throne. And we want to confess it right now and ask, Lord, some of us, you have revealed the wickedness of that and we are ready to repent. There are others of us, Lord, that still think it's okay. Would you move us to the place of understanding that we might repent? Wherever we're at, God, move us into freedom. And so, Lord, as a sign of owning up to you, we confess by standing those of us, Lord, that have placed money before you. That, Lord, we think every day about money. We are constantly wondering about our future. How are we going to make it? And how do we get more? And if I only had more, then I would be this way. And then I'd be more content. And, Lord, we constantly put money before you all the time. If you would ask us, I want you to do this, we would say, I don't want to spend the money on that. And we have placed it before you. Father, those of us that have a God of sexuality in our lives where Lord, we constantly dwell there. Think there. That is the way that we solve our world problems. It's where we run to and hide. It's the teddy bear of our lives. Lord, it has altered relationships with other people. It changes how we think of ourselves and how we operate. We stand in confession. Lord, for those of us that have the garbage of our past that has created a victim identity, we stand now asking that you would set us free of the guilt, shame, the darkness, the constant victimization. That, Lord, we have placed that before you. You have asked us to run in freedom. You have asked us to grasp grace. And we have pushed it all off and said, I'm a prisoner. God. We confess to you that we have placed before you our own self-image, our own self, where we think about us all the time. It's barely ever you. All our prayers are about us. Everything we do is about us. Every decision we make is what's best for us. And we have ceased to place you first. God, we stand if we have put fame and attention before you, that, Lord, we will even cave our own convictions if other people will approve us we don't allow your joy to dictate our good days we allow what people think of us to dictate our good days and we have allowed that god or goddess to remain in our lives heavenly father there are gods here that we don't even recognize there are things that are capturing our heart that have no place here we ask that you would shine a light and show us what they are. Addictions, drug abuse, alcoholism, gambling addiction, all of it.
Can I have everyone else stand and rise with me? Heavenly Father, we stand together as a church renewing our commitment to you as the one and only God. That we know that all the other things will never satisfy, they will never heal us, they will never be what we truly need. And we commit ourselves afresh to you as the body of Christ. May you be glorified in our midst and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.